I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. And if you would then as well get the sermon notes from your bulletin, you're going to really need those today, I promise. Um, There's a strong number today between 8 o'clock service, 9.30, and now. Last hour, parking lot totally filled, and this room quite filled. And I'm saying, wow, can you imagine? We had a sermon on the Trinity last week, and people came back. That's that's pretty amazing. Who knew? Um, Preaching on the Trinity, who does that? But we are, of course, as you see here on your sermon notes, first bullet point there under review, we're beginning, uh, this is week two, in a 10-week preaching series over the summer entitled We Believe. And you see our goals as stated. And this is intended to be theologically rich, but pastorally preached. So we're going to press your theological buttons in a number of areas. You're going to hear some theological words today and in weeks ahead that you're maybe not used to and that we don't banty around a lot because sometimes people get lost with terms. But in in using them as we're going to here today and providing explanation, I think it's appropriate to do so. So anyway, uh, the Bible says, gird up your loins. And so I'm saying, gird up your theological loins. We have wonderful things to talk about. Now, I want to point out as well, I brought some friends here today. I don't always have a table of books next to me, but I, I want to explain why I did this. Uh, some of these I'm going to read little parts from, but I, I'm wanting you, not, not at all, my goal is not that you'd look at some of these and go, I could never, you know, maybe this, maybe this category that we're going to talk about is just beyond me theologically. Not the point, not at all. My point in bringing books like, you know, 1,500 pages and 1,200 and 1,200, oh, it's, it's rather to say if there are books like this that are out here that are helpful, some of these are reference books, you wouldn't just read them for bedtime reading, um, but also, if you're in a place where you'd like a little more, I want to introduce you to helpful books. And if not so much is your answer, let it go, sister. Just let it go, all right? So anyway, if you, if you hear me talk about something that you might find helpful, great. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to comment on some of those in a moment. But if you look with me then at the, at the notes in front of you, you can see the order in which I want to go. And I just want to give you a roadmap as to what I'm doing today. It's a different style of preaching than we routinely do. So I've got it in four movements. Uh, it goes like this, declare and define. I want to state the doctrine that we're going to look at. We believe Jesus is truly God and truly man. Then I want to, I want to explain it a bit. Uh, that's the lesson in Christology. That's that section. And then I want, to, I want to explain where it comes from. I want to support it. That'll be Philippians 2. And then I want to apply it. So declare and, and define and support and apply would be the movements. Uh, I didn't use any of those terms on the notes, but that's really what I'm doing. So what I want to do is read the statement that is in our church doctrinal statement, say a few words about it, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, hold on to your horses. Away we go. All right? So the Sunset Bible Church doctrinal statement says this about this area of theology. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man without ceasing to be God, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary in order that he might reveal God and redeem sinful mankind. Now, every part of that statement is really important, okay? As we'll see along the way, we're going to talk about some of this. Every part of this is significant. 
to faith. And I, I just want to uh, just affirm something with you, then we'll pray and, and off we go. Um, every area of doctrine matters to your faith. Sometimes people kind of, you know, they go, well, man, I didn't sit around all week trying to just think about all these theological categories. I came hoping to find strength for my week, and I'm not sure that some theology thing, no, no. You know, the, the, the more you understand things that are true from Scripture, the more robust can be your life, the more robust you can be your faith when you're hanging on to stuff. You'll see that in a minute here. I just want to encourage you, the doctrine of Jesus, Christology, we call it, is intensely practical. So this isn't just some like lecture on theology you should have just skipped. Wrong. But pay attention, engage your mind and your heart, and I, I hope you'll see by the time we're done today why it matters that you know Jesus, your Savior, Redeemer, and friend, better. Okay? It'll affect your life. I want to pray and then off we go. Okay? Join me, please. Our Father, in this, we ask for your help. Um, we, we are stepping into areas of theology that perhaps uh, call us to think more deeply or intensely, maybe on a level that we're not used to in, in these areas. Would you help us? Help us to think critically, help us to think clearly, and help us at each point to take what we hear and say, why does that matter? and to see why it does. So help us now in your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to move then to what for me is the second movement here, the lesson in Christology. Okay, several things. This will take a minute. I'm building a case, so you know. I'm building a case as to why you should pay attention to all the rest. Okay? So Christology, I'm using the term. This is a theological term. Last week, we, we looked at theology proper. I mentioned to you ology. Remember this from eighth grade science? Biology, geology, the word ology, that part means the study of. So anytime you see ology, you're, it's a study of something. So Christology today, yeah, the study of Christ. Next week, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, it goes under the cool name pneumatology. Pneuma is Greek and all this other stuff. But we're going to give you a whole bunch of ologies over the summer. My goodness sakes, it's like going to Bible school or seminary, and here you go, and just come to church for it. But Christology then, the study of Jesus, the study of Christ. Now, First bullet point here. There's an observable difference between sermons in the past generations and sermons in modern times. Now, I'm not saying necessarily one is better than the other. I'm just pointing out a difference. In years gone by, uh, typically sermons uh, were longer, more theologically rich. Longer? Did I mention longer? Okay. Today's sermons tend to be different. Now, it isn't just the preachers preaching them. It's the people receiving them. Okay? Now, Sunset Bible Church perhaps is an exception, I would suggest. At least, I hope so. But in the past, uh, and I'm going to refer here to Michael Reeves, the first of one of these books that I'm going to be just drawing on briefly. Uh, Michael Reeves, his book, Rejoicing in Christ. So he comments here. And did I mention the title is Rejoicing in Christ? That matters. He says here, early part of the book, once upon a time, a book like this would have been utterly run-of-the-mill. Among the old Puritans, for example, you can scarcely find a writer who did not preach or a preacher who did not preach something like, 
the unsearchable riches of Christ, or Christ set forth, or the glory of Christ, or something like that. Yet today, what sells? He's just making a point. Today, you're more likely to hear five ways to have a fulfilling life. Nothing wrong with that as a topic. Or how to manage your money in the last days of the church. Not a bad topic. Just different from studying the unsearchable riches of Christ. I would suggest to you, one of those topics you're going to be more interested in on the day you die and on the day in your life when things go difficult. Mm-hmm. There was something about those old sermons that added richness and depth to our Christianity. Um, I'm, my, my next little bullet point, and I'm going to grab two more books, my aim here. Uh, to, to answer the question, what do God's people truly need to live well for the glory of Christ and to die with courageous faith? And you may say, well, I don't plan to die with courageous faith anytime soon. Uh, I would love to live well for the glory of Christ. That would be fine. But, but I'm asking the question, what do God's people need for this? And for this, I want to introduce you to um, a man that I've, I've mentioned before, one of the old Puritans, by the name of John Owen. Okay? Now, um, there are two parts of his life I'm going to touch on. Again, I'm building a case as to why we're talking about Christ today on the level that we are going to. I'm wanting you to see why. So, uh, again, Michael Reeves, Rejoicing in Christ, he tells a little bit about John Owen, this great Puritan, and why, he, why it mattered to him to know richly and deeply the doctrine of Christ. So, Reeves would say this. Owen was a man tragically familiar with heartbreak. At one point in the late 1650s, so this was, okay, a couple years ago, he was the vice chancellor of Oxford University, successful and influential. But in the second half of his life, he was pushed into obscurity and social exile, hampered and harassed by the new government, and there's a whole lot going in here, here um, in England at the time. That's a whole other study. Heavily outweighing all of that. He had to witness, are you ready? The death and burial of all 11 of his children, one at a time. This was a time when kids died a lot more from disease and pre- things today we'd say is preventable. But one after, I think his oldest daughter, if I... If I get it right and I may get it wrong, I think his oldest daughter lived to be in her early 20s. Then his wife, Mary. So this is the day when you're the pastor. You often lived in a parsonage across the the, the field. And there's the church and the cemetery there at the church. And Sunday after Sunday, he would walk over to preach by a growing number of graves with his children's names on the headstone. Here is what he said after the death of the first 10 you haven't, you, haven't, you haven't experienced that, nor have I, but you've experienced other stuff. So here's his, here's his statement for you. A due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above the troubles of this life and is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave their souls. 
So this is what he suggests for you in your struggle. This is the part about needing to know the doctrine of Christ so that you can live well for the glory of God. He would suggest that you spend more time than you do on the due contemplation of the glory of Christ. That your soul will, soul will be the richer for it and you will be more equipped to diff- handle the difficulties of life with the due contemplation of the glories of Christ. Now, don't lose this thought because Owen then later, as he was coming to die, and you're familiar with the song, and when I come to die, when I come to die, what's it say? Give me Jesus. So Owen was headed toward death. As he headed toward death, he wrote one more book. Any idea what it was about? Yeah. He wrote a book called Meditations on the Glory of Christ. Not his memoirs, nothing wrong with memoirs. Not 10 happy days from my life, fine. Meditations on the glory of Christ. So the day before he died, he wrote this to a friend. I am going to him whom my soul has loved, or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love. This is the whole ground of my comfort. I'm going to him. The day, the next day, August 24th, the day he was to die, another man was coming to tell him that his last book was now being published. Okay? And Owen said to him, I'm glad to hear it, but oh, my brother, the long-wished-for day has come at last. When I shall see that glory, that is the glory of Christ, in another manner than I have ever done or was capable of doing in this world, who says on their deathbed, the long-wished-for day has finally come? He was not talking about escaping pain. The long wish for it. I get to see Christ today. And he could hardly wait. Well, uh, we approach death differently, I realize. I join you in that journey. But John Owen saw growing depth at the glory of Christ as necessary equipment to live well and to die well. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, I look today then, I'm on my third little bullet point, building a case. You staying with me? You guys doing okay? I mean, you guys came back after a sermon on the Trinity, so I, you must be asking for something, and we'll deliver it. Um, today's topic, what is the hypostatic union and why it matters? And I realize, again, we're throwing around some theological terms. None of you got up this morning and said, boy, going to church today, I sure hope we talk about the hypostatic union. I know you didn't. It's not a term that you use much, and you might not hear it again from this pulpit in a while, but it fits today, so I'm going to go there. For that, I'm going to grab EDT, the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and another piece of paper. I just copied it out of a book. Because I didn't want to bring the whole thing. So, so hypostatic, hypostatic. I remember, well, I remember preaching, teaching Christology for a week in Russia with Kevin and Yulia before they got booted out. And, and I remember Yulia was my translator. We were teaching this, this doctor. I said, Yulia, what shall we do when we get to the hypostatic union? She said, come up with other terms. <laughs> I said, no problem. We'll teach the concept. Probably not try to have you translate word for word. Hypost. What is this? 
So I'm reading the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. You could buy this book for, I don't know what it is these days. I've had it for a while. It's a dictionary on theological terms. So if you ever hear some term, you could look it up. So here I am at H, just like you would look up in a dictionary. There at the end, hypo, hypostatic union. Huh, look at that. You can get yourself all theologically aware by reading this book. Well, it says this. The doctrine of the hypostatic union first set forth officially in the definition of faith produced by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. It concerns the union of the two natures of deity and humanity in the one person of Jesus Christ. It can be stated as follows. In the incarnation of the Son of God, a human nature was inseparably united forever with the divine nature in the one person of Jesus Christ, yet with the two natures remaining distinct, whole, and unchanged without mixture or confusion so that the one person, Jesus Christ, is truly God and truly man. It goes on from there, but that's what this says. Now, I want to go to the Council of Chalcedon for a moment since you were hoping today to hear something about the important uh, church councils down through history, Council of Chalcedon 451, let me tell you why they got together. It was a group of church leaders, um, variously uh, different numbers, 550 to 650 of them, who got together in the year 451 from early October to the like early November, about three and a half weeks, to, 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 to wrestle with, to wordsmith. You imagine wordsmithing with 500 people in the room? Good luck on that, huh? So they wanted to say, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of nonsense being bantered around about who Jesus was and is. We need to clarify the biblical teaching in a, in a, in a statement that we can get our arms around. People were teaching all kinds of stuff, fully God, fully man. So people were saying, like, he's, he's over here acting like man. Now he's going to run over here and act like God. Kind of like a, like, I'm going to use the, the, the term, and I don't mean to diminish it at all, schizophrenic. Or, or bipolar. They don't, people in our church struggle with both of those. I get it. I'm not minimizing them. But people look at Jesus and say, is that what he was? Did he like flip back and forth, Jekyll and Hyde? Or how did this work? And did he, did he like glide above the dirt? I mean, did he have a real physical body? You know, you've seen the early art with the halo around him, right? Usually with the finger up or something like that. Did Jesus really walk around with a halo? Did he glow? And so they were, and there were a whole bunch of heresies going on that did not reflect the Bible. So the Council of Chalcedon got together, spent that three and a half weeks saying, let's talk about it. And I'm going to read you part of their statement. Okay? So they said something like this. Following the Holy Fathers, we confess with one voice that the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is perfect in Godhead and perfect in humanity. Truly God and truly man, with a rational soul and body. He is of one substance with the Father as God. He is also of one substance with us as man. He is like us in all things except sin. Two natures without confusion, without change, without separation. Both natures unite into one person. And then they explain it a little more than that. So they're wanting to say, no, Jesus didn't dance back and forth between a divine and human self. He was, he was a unified person, God in the flesh. So this is, this is in the year 451. And theologians down through the years have looked at Scripture and said yes, yes to this. Now, I have good news for you. In this book, 
uh, this writer boils it down to one sentence. Merry Christmas. So Wayne Grudem says this, as he begins a lengthy section on the person of Christ. He says this, we can summarize the biblical teaching about the person of Christ as follows. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Huh. There you go. Now, with that, I want to step to Philippians 2. Hopefully you have that in front of you. I asked that a while ago. I know you put your Bible down. You didn't think we're getting there. We are. Here we go. I want to, I want to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I want you to see what we have just defined, ex- illustrated here in Scripture. I want you to see how the two go together. And I want to just to think with you about some of the details here that we're looking at. So Philippians 2, 1 through 11, God's word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, and of course with the ifs he's meaning, and there is, here's the call. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not recount equality with God, a thing to be grasped, that is to be hung on to tenaciously, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's going to be three lines that are almost the same, same point. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. You see those three. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's word. Now, if there was ever a question about the practicality of Christology, get used to me using the term study of Christ. If you ever wondered, is this really practical that we press on it this much? Paul would say here in this chapter, yes, because you might notice that the the specifically Christological paragraph, verses 5 through 11, is bracketed by two statements that are very, very practical. So he starts in verses 1 to 4 to talk about Christian humility and what it means to be a Christian who's aware that it's not all about you. I mean, the world's going to tell you you're pretty amazing, and on a certain level, I suppose, because you're creation of God, but... On the other hand, get over yourself. You're not that amazing, okay? You're another person, a lot of other amazing people around you. So we're all amazing as image of God bearers, but, but humility of mind there, friend, right? So he calls us to humility, thinking of others' needs first. 
putting other people ahead of you. He calls us to that based on what Jesus did. And then he follows that, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you've always obeyed, uh, so now, not only in my presence, more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. God is at work in you. So he's asking them to pursue obedience, and it's followed by therefore. That's how that verse 12 begins. So the part about Christ, it's therefore, because of Christ, here's what you should do. So I'm saying this, this part about Christ in 5 through 11 is bracketed by very practical statements, calls that Paul issues on how we're to live like Christians. Now, the first four verses then, as you drill into the text a bit, that, that part that's a call, let us, this is the way to live, do nothing from, and then that pivot point that begins in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, or have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, then he's going to define the mind the mind of Christ. Now, keep that text very close and your sermon notes as well. I want you to go to that next bullet points on the other side. Jesus Christ, and this is italicized uh, and has quotes on it because I didn't write this. I always try to define for you what stuff I wrote and what stuff I didn't so you don't think if there was an amazing statement I didn't. No, I I borrowed this from um, material on Christology from Slavic Gospel Association that I taught in Russia. So they had this helpful phrase, I thought, Jesus Christ temporarily set aside his glory and the free exercise of the attributes of deity, submitting himself to the Father. So what are we, what are we saying here? Let me try on some very brief level to give a couple examples of what we're wanting to say, and this flows right out of the text, in particular verse 6. We're saying this, when Jesus left the glory of heaven, He was leaving an existence that was truly glorious. We were speaking of this last week as we talked about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit through all eternity, perfect in the Trinity, perfect in satisfaction, not needy, not desperate, not saying we're bored or lonely, but holy and happy in themselves, enjoying the worship of angels. And Jesus left that perfect setting and came down and took on human flesh, being, being incarnate. Incarnate is a cool word that means enfleshed, okay? Being placed into human, hum, humanity in the womb of a young Jewish girl, okay? He took on humanity. God became flesh and dwelt among us. So setting aside his glory and, and, and being in a womb. Do you see a difference between a throne in heaven worshiped by angels and, and, and further, in a human body with limitations, spatially limited to one place? The God who created the universe, Jesus Christ, the Son, now in a human body in one time and place. Wow. That's the idea, temporarily setting aside his glory. That would be the glory of heaven. Was he still God in the flesh? Yes, absolutely but God in the flesh. So that free exercise of the attributes of deity, that's a pretty big deal too. So think with me about this, okay? When Jesus was born, when he came forth from, from, from Mary, did he come forth speaking full sentences because he was God in the flesh? Thank you. No, no, he didn't. He came forth as a baby, 
who needed to learn one, two, three, and mama and daddy, Abba, just like anybody else. He, he submitted himself to humanity, which meant that as a baby, he needed to learn all the little things little boys and girls need to learn. Okay? He, he, God in the flesh. The, the, the journey of humanity in a body that gets hungry and tired, that needs to eat, that if you cut it with a knife, it bleeds. If you smack your thumb with a hammer, it hurts. That kind of human body. See, over the years, Christians typically deal well with the deity of Christ and typically minimize, dear friends, the humanity of Christ. And we're wanting to rebalance that today. We spend more time, more, more ink, on, on defending the deity of Christ, and we have spoken less about his humanity. We're wanting to, to correct that, I think. Temporarily setting aside his glory into a human body. Now, there is substantial discussion about uh, Jesus, what did he know? What did he not know? Was there a moment in his life when suddenly he knew everything again because he was 12 years old? And now, clearly he had a sharp mind. Book of Luke, Gospel of Luke tells us Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew. He could discuss things with religious leaders. Um, interestingly, here's a book you can really press into on this. Bruce Ware will force you to think well. Um, Bruce Ware uh, is a theologian. I had him at Western Seminary when he was very young, because it was a couple years ago. Went on from Western Seminary to Grace Theological Seminary. Now is a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. This book, The Man, The Man, Christ Jesus. He's not denying his deity He's pressing on the issue of his humanity. Theological reflections on the humanity of Christ. By the way, D.A. Carson, some of these books I'm not going to reference other than now. Jesus, the Son of God, a Christological title often overlooked, sometimes misunderstood, currently disputed. So this is a really good book from from D.A. Carson. Um, This is a a classic theological uh, dealing with the person of Christ, Don McLeod. You'll like this if you like easy bedtime reading. Chapter 7 is all about the Council of Chalcedon. If you want to really drill into the Council of Chalcedon, read chapter 7 and try to stay awake. Chapter 8, the kenosis, which we'll address in a minute. It's all about that. A whole chapter on one Greek word. Uh, I know, I'll I'll say something here in a minute. Wow, a whole chapter on the sinlessness of Christ. Well, that's kind of fun. Jesus Christ, our Lord. A classic book on Christology from John Walverd. Uh, longtime president of Dallas Seminary. Okay, those are some of the books I have, but this one is dealing specifically with the humanity of Christ. And he will force you to think through, what did Jesus know and what did he not know in his humanity? Some people are troubled by Jesus saying, you know, of that day and hour when the Son of Man's going to come, none of us know, not even the Son, the Father only. People say, you, mean, you, you don't even, What? There's something you didn't know? Aren't you God in the flesh? I thought you were supposed to know everything. When we say things like that, we minimize his humanity. Okay? God in human flesh. Now, I I, I want to to look with you at the text, some of the lines that are here, and we'll touch on this cool word, kenosis. Probably the only time you, well, it's not one we throw around all the time. It it bears discussing and explaining. So verse 6 you look with me at these phrases that are here. Jesus, of course, who although though he was in the form of God, fully God, throne of heaven, did not count that place of equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, held on to tenaciously, unwilling to give it up, but rather 
He emptied himself, and that's where the term kenosis comes from. It's a Greek term, uh, kenosis. More on that in a minute. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And I mentioned these, the next three lines kind of repeat the same thing. It's emphasizing his, his humanity by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. It's, it's Paul wanting to say he became a human, true human. Yes, I get it. Still God, 100%. Stand with the Council of Chalcedon. True human. Now, verse 8 goes on to explain the, the, the continued humbling. So he's already been humbled. I like to say he came down, way down, to be born as a human. And he went even further down by submitting himself to the death that he died. More on that in a minute. I want to talk about the term kenosis for a minute. There, th- that idea, you might hear it in some readings and so on. Uh, some theologians that I have on the table here in their books uh, use the term and define it carefully. Uh, Wayne Grudem doesn't like it because it's been kind of messed up, the term. Uh, there's a, a, it was a whole theory in the 1800s that really did damage to this and wanted to say of Jesus that he became less than fully God. And so he kind of takes a shot at that. But some of the other writers here don't mind using the term, but they use it, they, they use it dis- with, with decided accuracy. No, he set aside his rights as God to be worshipped and live in a perfect place and took on humanity. So th- that's the idea of what's being discussed. Now, the term kenosis is translated in your Bibles. Everyone, if you've got a Bible open, it's translated there. And it's at the beginning of verse 7, and it's, it comes across differently depending on the translation. So a couple of them will say, for example, the old King James and the new King James both say, he made himself of no reputation. It's trying to capture this, the, the self-emptying of the Son of God. Some will say he emptied himself, which is what I read earlier, this edition of the ESV. A couple of them, for example, the NIV, is trying to, is trying to capture a word, and translate it. So the NIV says, I believe, most of them, uh, again, they're different editions, but, but some would say, he made himself nothing, which isn't my favorite translation. I think that gives away the store, too. Was Jesus, Son of God, Savior, ever nothing? So that phrase makes me grumpy. If you have an NIV, just, you know, well, I don't know about cross it out. It's, it's a translation into English of a Greek word. And they're trying to get, they're trying to get their arms around this. And, and, and compared to God in heaven ruling over the angels in the universe, becoming a human is kind of like becoming nothing, they would argue. But I still push back a little bit and go, you mean, you mean like a zero? Because I'm not sure that makes me feel real happy. Uh, the, the NLT, the New Living Translation, which is a, a tr- translation, but some interpretation. So depending on what theory you like of translation theory, and I do know the discussion, it would put it like this. He gave up his divine privileges. That's not bad. That's not bad. It, granted, it interprets a bit. I forgive the NLT, because I think that's a pretty good translation. Now, if you look at my notes, I'm wanting you to see four things. This is under the section called The Willing Self-Humbling of Jesus Christ. I'm going to list four things here. And this is reflective, I think, accurately, of verses 7 and 8. That's what I'm wanting to do. So this. 
The willing self-humbling of Jesus Christ involved leaving. That's the first, leaving. They're all uh, using that similar form. Leaving the glory of heaven, becoming, there's a second, veiled in flesh, born as true human, experiencing, learning and growth as all humans do, and submitting. Those are my four. Submitting to cruel violence from his creatures and then an agonizing and painful death on a Roman cross. So leaving, becoming, experiencing, submitting. I think those four, if you underline those, those four words, you will get the point of verses seven and eight. He, he, he was leaving the glory of heaven, becoming veiled in flesh, experiencing learning and growth as all humans do, all the pluses and minuses of that, and submitting to cruel violence from his creatures, and then an agonizing, painful death on the cross. Kenosis, okay? Now, You'll notice that I used the term veiled in flesh, and I did that because I'm wanting to draw a song to your mind. If you pay attention to the songs we sing, I hope you paid attention this morning. Pastor Stephen chose songs, all of which support everything I'm saying today. Every song chosen, every song you, sa- you sang Christology all morning. Crown him with many crowns. Yes, you did. All of those were richly theological. Be, um, I could go over all those. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote a Christmas song. It's one of my favorites. And I hope you, when, you, when you sing it, that you're thinking about more than, you know, presents under the tree and that nasty fruitcake stuff. So, <laughs> sorry. Hark the herald angels sing. He'd read Philippians 2. I promise. This is Trinitarian gloriously, doxologically, Christology, Christological. Okay, there's all your cool theological words. It's glory. So he wrote, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. He could hardly have packed more into that song. He'd read Philippians 2. In verse 3, there's another line where he speaks of verse 7. He does. Mild, it says, mild, he lays his glory by. Same song, third verse. Mild, he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. I'm telling you, Charles Wesley had read and knew Philippians 2 by heart and could, could put it into verse to say, do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you believe what you're singing? Now, verses 9 through 11 then are a doxology. That means praise, doxa, to, to praise, to bring, sing glory to. So verses 9 through 11 are that. Therefore, because of this humbling of Jesus and his humbling in death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I put in your notes here, he will be worshipped for all eternity. 
And I give you uh, Revelation 5 as proof of this, because if you read Revelation 5, you will read words from heaven itself come to earth. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and power. You, 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 you were slain, and with your blood you ransomed for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God. We will reign forever. And again, a couple of verses later, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. For all eternity, Christ in his humbling to become a human and his humbling to the point of death, he will be, he will be worshiped. And I would suggest to you all that you start now. Because this is the song of the ages. The song of the ages isn't, I'm pretty cool. The song of the ages is the glory of Christ. You should know it. Now, moving very quickly, just a couple of these things. A a lot of this I've given you verses on because I hope that you'll read them later. I'm not going to all of them. It would be the next hour of class, if I may suggest. Uh, But but I I just want to say a couple things about both the humanity of Christ and his deity and why both matter. They both must be intact. For Christ to be your Savior, for Christ to be to you all that you want and need him to be, he must be both human and fully God. So why is the humanity of Christ so important? I'm giving you four, uh, just very briefly. He is our representative in obedience, perfect obedience, as the second Adam. Now, if you read Romans 5, the text I've given you there, 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see this back and forth between 1st Adam and 2nd Adam, and your brain's going to go sideways and say, I don't get that at all. I'll summarize it like this. Remember Adam, like Adam and Eve? How did he do in the garden? Not so well. He was called to, along with Eve, Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, male and female, to be vice regents over this new, over this creation. That was God's call. Didn't do so well went right away into sin. The first Adam failed. And in Romans 5, as one man, sin entered into the world, one man, it speaks of Adam, not Eve. As Adam, through Adam, sin entered the world. And you can find that in Genesis 3, by the way. You can deal with this however you want with gender stuff. It doesn't matter to me, just read your Bible. Okay, you'll work it out from there. But it seems that credit, uh, sin was credited to the human race when Adam sinned, not Eve. Okay? Do what you like with that. You say, oh, the men are worse. That's not the point. I'm just saying, so, so in Romans 5, it says, as w- by one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. Christ, the second Adam, how did he do in the garden? Remember the garden? As he wrestled. Why is it in a garden? Is it a recapitulation of Eden? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And you go to Revelation 22, there's another garden. It's really cool. The way the story plays out, looks like you might have had one author. Well, Jesus, the second Adam, the second Adam fully obeyed the Father. Why does it matter that Christ was born of a virgin? Because of what I just said in Romans 5, by one man, sin entered the world. Jesus did not have a human father. He had a divine father. Didn't have a sin nature. Just wrestle with that. Ha! Huh. Why does it matter that he was perfectly human? So that he could be a, the human representative to fully obey the Father. The first Adam didn't do so well. The second Adam, Jesus, fully obeyed. He had to be human to be that representative. He is our substitute sacrifice. A couple of these I'll read. So, so just hear this. Hebrews chapter 2. Since, the, the, since then the children share in flesh and blood. That's us. He himself likewise partook of the same things so that through death 
he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, that's us, who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery. Surely it's not the angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, that is, Jesus didn't die for the angels. He died for people, humans, descendants of Abraham. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, humans, in every respect. Oh, this is so good. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. See? In the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. When you are tempted to sin, you have a faithful high priest whose name is Jesus, who knows what it's like. Now you can say, yeah, but I, he wasn't, I mean, come on. Jesus wasn't ever tempted to eat a whole pizza. Well, well, I know that. That wasn't first century food. But here's the thing. He was tempted in every category as you. Yet without sin. So when you are tempted, rather than being all embarrassed and running to God and saying, look, I know this is really terrible. I shouldn't be tempted like this. Jesus, the Son of God, merciful Savior, will say, I know my child. I do understand. A merciful and faithful high priest. So he is that, he could be our, he could be our substitute. He could take on human flesh and die a death in our place. Uh, I'm going to go to Hebrews 4 in just a moment here, but I'm just going to reference 1 Timothy 2.5. As you see, he is the one mediator between God and mankind. This is the Apostle Paul where he says, for there is one God and one mediator. Please listen to it. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. Who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. Why did Paul say that? The man, Christ Jesus. The perfect man and God in the flesh. The one who could stand between us. God and humanity. There's one God, one mediator. Hebrews 4, a true, eternal, sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest. See the double negative? We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Oh, to receive mercy, grace to help in time of need. Why is the deity of Christ so important? Again, I'm going very quickly. Hope you'll look up the rest. He is our sinless savior. If he had a human father, he couldn't be sinless. Deity, God was his father, not Joseph. The virgin birth matters. Okay? He is our sinless Savior. He's our eternal high priest. He can, Hebrews 7.25, save to the uttermost. Wow. Able to fulfill God's purpose. I've referenced this up above. For, for man to rule over creation, Genesis 1. And by the way, we heard Psalm 8 earlier. Read it Christologically. You'll take, you get a whole different look at Psalm 8. God's intent for mankind. Jesus fulfilled it. Psalm 8 is profoundly Christological when you read it through the eyes of a Savior. I want to go to that final section called Responding to God's Word in Worship and Obedience. And if you will allow me, uh, I, what I would like to do is read, just, I'm just going to read the first part of that, and I'm going to let you uh, later read the other part of that. I want to read Colossians 1, and this is kind of a final heading toward a benediction, that sort of thing. 
I just want you to hear Paul reflect on this, the glory of Christ, Christology, that's what this is. Uh, Trinitarian uh, to its core, you're learning all these words. So Colossians 1, just hear this, please. Colossians 1. Speaking of Christ, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, firstborn is a position, not a time stamp. Firstborn means you're the boss. You could earn the position of firstborn. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Please get this. All things were created through him and, what is it? For him. Why do you exist? For him. Is it for your own self-fulfillment? No. Is it just so you'll be happy? How many people say, I just want you to be happy? That is a sub-Christian thing to say. That is not reflective of biblical theology. I just want you to be happy. Really? What I long for is for people to fulfill the purpose for which they were made for him. No, you weren't just created for you, for you to be happy. No, you're created for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn, out from among the dead. That is, we too who die before the return of Christ. We too will come from the dead. Resurrection in him, that in everything he might be preeminent, first place. For in him all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, and on it goes. This is glorious stuff. And I'll close with this, that final little statement. You have a glorious Savior in the person of Jesus. You do. You have a great and faithful high priest who knows your name and knows your weakness. There will never be a time when you come to him and will not find mercy and grace to help in time of need. There will never be a day you will come and find heaven's arms crossed. Oh, I know, I know there are times we do wrong. But you will find a father coming to you through the son who runs to the prodigal coming back. See, that's what you will find. You have a merciful and faithful high priest. Come to him, run to him, come to him in faith. If you've never trusted Christ as your savior from sin, for goodness sakes, what kind of savior do you think you need? He is there in the person of Jesus. Christ is the savior you need. He is the one who died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead. So he is the savior you need. Trust him. If you've never trusted Christ as your savior, come to him today in saving faith and trust Christ and him alone as your savior from sin. In your living, run to him. In your struggles and temptations, run to him. And on the day you come to die, your feet will instinctively run to him all the way home. I'm going to pray for us. Stand with me, please. Our Father, thank you so much for what you've told us of your dear son, Jesus. Thank you. Oh, this is a mouthful today. We wrap our arms around big things. Help us to understand, to grapple with, and to believe. Have your hand on us this week, day camp, all the things ahead of us. Some of us now run to the school and prepare. Oh, Lord, uh, walk with us. Thank you for the morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.